They got their copy of the book. Yes, good. There's still a few copies left. Amazing. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Oh, dear. <laughs> Starts to mean to go on in 2020. Uh, this is a new year. It is a new series, as Bob said. This is going to cover the next three Sundays, including today, over the next fortnight. And uh, today, obviously, the first of three, we're going to be looking at three questions. Because as we step into this new season, it's always, as we step into a new season as church, as individuals, as families, it's always good to reflect on where we've been, to celebrate on what's happened, and just to, just to be mindful of where, where we're stepping. We want to put our best foot forward, don't we, as, as individuals in the, in the workplace, in the home, whatever that might be, or um, particularly here in this context, as, as a church. And there's, there's a reason why people do New Year's resolutions goals at the beginning of the year. I remember repeatedly, Jenny and I, we did our goals every year and included on those goals was go to the gym. After a few years, we realized we should probably remove that from our goals because it definitely wasn't happening. But at the new year, there tends to be a, um, it's, it's a, just a good time just to press pause, to reflect and to put our best foot forward. And that's what this series is all about for us as a church. I can absolutely guarantee that today, across the country, across the world in fact, there are plenty of preachers preaching their new vision series and they're calling it 2020 Vision. I can promise you they are. They, I, know that, I know it in my bones and I, it's too cheesy, I'm not doing it. So, uh, oh, go on. Uh, well, you could have 2020 Vision but it's not the title of my series. <laughs> I'm not doing it. Someone somewhere is definitely doing it. But first of all, a little science experiment. Have you noticed anything in your bulletins that is a bit odd? Yeah. Oh, some people have seen it. Very good. In the middle, at the bottom, you have an X, a cross, and a dot. Close your right eye. Holding this a few inches from your face, fix your left eye, your open left eye, on the cross. Or, if you know, one eye is weaker than the other, if you wish, you can close your left eye and fix your right eye on the dot. Does that make sense? So open left eye on the cross or an open right eye on the dot. As you're staring at your chosen shape, move it further away from your face. And after a short while, something happens. <gasps> what happens? Disappears. What disappears? The other shape. It's cool, isn't it? If you want to try the other eye, fix your open right eye on the dot instead of the X if you want and move it away and what happens it disappears how cool is that it's to do with the the um, physiology of the eye every eye has a blind spot it's where the it's actually if you want a bit of biology it's where the the um, optic nerve enters and attaches to the retina there's a blind spot where you don't have your cones and rods we all have blind spots but we don't just have physical blind spots, do we? Iris is enjoying that, look. It's good, isn't it? Yours is still there. Everybody except for Iris has blind spots, but not just physical blind spots. We also have uh, other kinds of blind spots in our lives. We have behaviours that are self-sabotaging sometimes, don't we? We have habits that hold us back, and they tend to be habits that we don't see, and everybody else does, but because we're British, we don't like to say anything. Don't we? Sometimes... We, we see things in other people, but actually we forget that other people are seeing things in us that we don't see. We all have 
blind spots. And the trouble is, we collectively, as the church, can have blind spots too. We can't assume we see and know and understand, able to reflect on everything. Can I have the first slide up, please, Paul? And so with that in mind, over these next three Sundays, we're going to be working through the book of Haggai. I'll tell you where that is in a minute, don't worry. Um, We're going to ask three questions from reading through the book of Haggai. If you want to try and find him, he is the third to last book in the Old Testament. If you look in the Bible, he's the third to last book. You've got Haggai, then Zechariah, then Malachi, and then that blank piece of paper before the New Testament starts. He's the third to last. Haggai was writing his message from the Lord to the people of Israel. He was writing it um, about 500 years BC. He's called a minor prophet. He's one of the 12 minor prophets. He's got the major, five major prophets and 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. They're only called minor, not because they're less important. They're called minor because the major prophets are big books. The minor prophets are small books. This one's only two chapters, 38 verses. He's only called minor because of the size of the book, not because of the value or importance. And what we're going to do, we're going to read all of this book of Haggai, these 38 verses, these two chapters, over three Sundays And we're going to ask these three questions. Today, we're going to look at the first half of chapter 1. And we're going to ask the question, whose house? Simply, what are we living for? And in so doing so, I trust maybe we'll unearth some blind spots, something that God wants to speak to us about as a church and perhaps also on a personal level as well. Next week, we're going to look at the the rest of chapter 1 and the beginning part of chapter 2 and ask the question, whose eyes? Where are we looking in our current circumstances as individuals and as a, collectively as a church? What do we see? Are we looking at the surface or are we looking deeper? Whose eyes are we looking through, ours or God's? And then two weeks' time on the third Sunday on the 19th of Jan, we're going to ask whose purpose. As we look at the remaining part of chapter 2, the remaining part of the book of Haggai, we're going to ask whose purpose. What is God's intent for us? We have to look at the bigger picture which will overlap with the week before, about whose eyes are we looking through? What is God's purpose for us? But today we're going to ask that first question, whose house? Let me just pray, and then we'll read. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who reveals himself to us, even today, not just then, and that your word is just as relevant now as it was then. Lord, will you speak to us this morning? Help us to keep our eyes and ears open to what you might want to say to us. And Lord, will you grant us the courage to be willing to step forward when you speak, to be obedient where you're asking us to step up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to read the first 11 verses of this, just to set the context of why God is bringing this message to the people through the prophet Haggai. It's all about the temple. Because the first temple was built by King Solomon, roughly around 1,000 years BC. King Solomon, at God's command, he built this amazing, resplendent temple, which became the focal point for the people of Israel to worship God. It was based in Jerusalem, the big focal point of the nation. It's the capital of the nation, and within there was this great temple, which became the focal point of the nation's worship of the living, holy God. And this temple was magnificent, simply magnificent, like a wonder of the world. It's the result of a monumental building project. It's, um, it's resplendent in precious metals and ornately carved woods. It was the result of just some exquisite, incredible craftsmanship. However, 400 years after it had been built, there was an evil 
um, enemy king from another nation called Nebuchadnezzar, who had it destroyed, invaded the land, had that temple destroyed, and many of the people were taken home, uh, back to his, his home, a thousand miles away, as exiles, as prisoners, effectively, and put to work. A terrible tragedy for the nation. The temple's gone, the people have been moved. Fifty years after that, there's another king on the throne in that nation, called King Cyrus. And remarkably, he issues this decree and order for the exiles to return home and to rebuild their temple. Hurrah! But when the foundations of this new temple were built, we read about it in Ezra chapter 3, when the foundations of this new second temple were built, the younger men, it says, the younger men shouted for joy and the older men wept because they remember what had been and what God's doing. But this great cry of joy and weeping, what it did was stirred their surrounding enemies. There was persecution and attack as a result. And actually, it resulted in the work coming very quickly and abruptly to a stop. And actually, having the foundations been laid for this second temple, nothing else happened for 16 years. And this is when God speaks through the prophet Haggai, he uses this guy, Haggai and his contemporary, his kind of co-worker Zechariah, which is the next book along. He uses these two prophets to speak to the people and to deliver a message to the governor of the people, Zerubbabel, where his name will get mentioned in a minute, and also to the high priest, this guy called Joshua. And this is what God has to say to them. Verse 1. In the second year of Darius, there's another king, they started changing quite quickly this other nation's king. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. I love that. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labours. God here is calling them out to some massive blind spots in their hearts, isn't he? Is, uh, he's, he's given them two big clues to them. Verse 4, he says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house, my house, lies in ruins? He's saying, my house is, is in disrepair, but you're quite happily living in your perfect show homes. What's up, guys? He's effectively saying, where are your priorities? 
It's a big question. And then verse 6, he said just before that, consider your ways. Think about this. He says, you've so much and you've harvested little. You eat, you never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. Clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And you earn wages, but they just, it's just like you're putting them into a bag with holes. He's saying, your appetites are never satisfied. You're ending up with too much month at the end of your money. He said, effectively, I've done that to wake you up. And yet you still don't seem to be getting it. He's saying, how on earth have you not spotted the connection here? Your priorities are whack, and I'm not going to keep satisfying your big fat bellies. I'm trying to wake you up to this, and you're still not getting it. And so, effectively, this leads us to ask that if their priorities were wonky, and that was leading to dissatisfaction and unmet needs, then if, if ever we're dis sensing dissatisfaction, unmet needs, the inability to press through, sometimes we just need to sit up and listen and ask, where are my priorities right now? Am I seeking after the right thing first? Am I seeking him first before all things? Am I blind to the fact that I'm not? It's a fair question to ask, isn't it? Can we have the second slide up, please, Paul? There you go. So what we see here that God's saying to these people, he's talking about complacency and comfort. He's saying it's blinding the people to what's really at stake. And what's at stake here is genuine worship of the living God in action rather than just lip service. Yeah, yeah, we're God's people. We worship him. He's our God. Anyway, I'll be over here with my Netflix and my nice house. That's effectively what, what's going on. And so we, at the very least, I, <laughs> need to ask, am I in danger of that too? That's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the danger of complacency. Just briefly, and look at the danger of comfort before we come to ask that big question at the end. The danger of complacency. Have you ever heard of Apathy Club? <laughs> A bit like Fight Club, but you're allowed to talk about this one. Apathy Club, there's this lovely tale about these college students on campus that started a new club. Do you know what? Bit cheeky. Let's start Apathy Club. It'd be brilliant. They, uh, they, their motto was, we believe in nothing, we pursue nothing. And they actually went, uh, to be fair, they put a lot of effort into uh, printing up a lot of flyers, handing them around campus, inviting everyone to their big opening night. Wednesday night, please come along. It's going to be brilliant. Apathy Club. Be right, I'll giggle. We, we believe nothing, we pursue nothing. Come along. They invited everyone. Guess what happened? No one came. Apathy Club served its purpose. Because no one cared. Everyone was apathetic about Apathy Club. The question is, the question that musters up is like, why should we bother? Actually, if you can't come up with a satisfactory answer for that, nothing gets done. Apathy, well, what's the point? Why should I bother? Apathy is a silent killer. And I think, I've been aware of this for years, and I've seen it in my own heart as well, apathy is a big killer to the church in this country. We're comfortable. It's easy. You see, nature, I'm not wishing persecution on us at all. And we think we get persecuted. We do not, because someone looked at you funny. That's not persecution. <laughs> there's some serious stuff going on around the planet. Now, you look at Open Doors' website, there's some serious stuff going on the planet at the moment to Christians around the world because of who and what they stand for. That's persecution. But what it does, it wakes the church up. <laughs> I'll tell you. We've got it easy in this country, and that's actually working against us in so many ways. Apathy is a silent killer. But urgency, in contrast, is a very powerful aspect of human thinking, of human psychology, and it, therefore it becomes a very powerful tool. You see it in the, in the world of marketing, 
It's commonly utilised in marketing, the sense of urgency, creating urgency, or even in secular workforce conversations, using urgency to a team leader's advantage to get stuff done. It's like, guys, we're, you know, we're running out of time, we're running out of resources, or we need to push in. Creating urgency makes stuff happen, because when we think something is running out, we want it more. The girls and I have been to um, Blue Water a couple of times in the past month, and mother care, mother care, all my life, they've got an amazing sale on. They're closing down. Mother care at Blue Water are closing down, and everything must go. They've got huge, great signs in the windows, prices slashed. Prices are ridiculously cheap, because everything must go. You're running out of time, get it at these prices, and this time only. And for a split second there, I got quite excited. What can we get? What can Oh, baby clothes. Oh, baby unit. Oh, uh, well, these toys. Oh, the ridiculous prices. Which? Oh, I got a bit excited for a moment. And then I remembered we had a 16-year-old and not a 16-week-old. <laughs> but for a moment there, it's like all fear of missing out. Get the, I'll, I'll, if, if I come back another time, those prices might have gone back up again. You see what I mean? It just that sense of urgency suddenly got me excited about buying something I really didn't need. When the cupboards are bare, we feel hungrier, don't we? Do you know, it's, it's, it's a psychological thing. Urgency has a psychological effect on us. And so the trouble is, when we're complacent, when we think everything is okay, we lose that sense of healthy urgency, and we just shrug our shoulders. Well, why, why should I bother? Everything's all right. What's the problem? Who here is good at timekeeping? Who's good at timekeeping? Who's not good at timekeeping? I'm avoiding eye contact with my wife. You are being honest. Well done, my darling. Your hand's right up there. Good girl, good girl. When we think we have plenty of time, our sense of urgency is diminished. It's like, don't worry about it. Even when we're wrong, when we think we have enough time, we don't worry about it, do we? And a lack of urgency is what we see in the people here in this passage. Verse 2, what's the reason they haven't done anything now? Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Since it was destroyed, there's been 50 years, then the foundation got laid, and there's now been a 16-year gap. This is now 66 years after the temple was destroyed, and a foundation has been laid in the meantime. And these people are very aware of a prophecy by Jeremiah, one of the major prophets, which said beforehand that the temple would be destroyed, and 70 years after it will be rebuilt. And they're thinking, 70 years isn't up yet. We've got plenty of time. That's what they're saying, literally. God is allowing this 16-year delay, but strangely enough, we then discover he also allowed enough space stirring them now for a four-year building project. When it gets finished, it's year 70. God knows exactly what he's doing. He's not, he's not silly with his maths. But here's the thing. The people are not saying no. The people are not saying never. What they're saying is, not now, not yet. And that is equally dangerous. That is equally dangerous. We may think we're being obedient to God by not saying no to him. Well, I'm still going to church, I serve on a rota, contribute to the offering, I keep the numbers up. Being obedient, not saying no to him. But maybe if, and amongst all that, that's all good stuff, but if in, maybe in amongst all that, has he challenged you about stepping out? And you've gone, yeah, maybe later. Has he challenged you about serving in a new way? Has he challenged you about stepping away from certain behaviours, certain areas of life, certain people maybe, I don't know. 
Has he, is he asking you to take bolder steps in your giving or in your time or embracing responsibility? Has he spoken to you? Has he confronted you about an area of complacency? And you're going, I'm not being disobedient. I'm just saying not yet. That can be just as dangerous. Not saying no, but yeah, later. That can be just as much a dangerous place to be. We've got to ask the question, are we, like the Israelites here, are we putting off what God has told us to do? Maybe you've got a promise over your life. Maybe God's challenged you as you read his word. Maybe you just felt that pinprick. You're thinking, I'll deal with that later. Maybe God's asking you to look at it now. Perhaps you're actually putting off, actually meeting with him in a new way. Yeah, I really need to press in and go deeper with God. And each year comes around, I really need to press in and go deeper with God and not actually getting around to it. Maybe you're putting off actually meeting with him for the first time. Maybe you go, I get this stuff and it makes sense. It's a bit scary. I'll do it later. (coughs) Is God asking you to truly meet with him for the first time? The danger of complacency is a very real and true danger to all of us, even today. But sometimes, it's not just the danger of procrastination. It's not just the fact that we're doing that that can be the problem. Sometimes we also need to recognize the pull of where we are now that's holding us back as well, which is where the danger of comfort comes in. Because for these people, their creature comforts have a gravitational pull on their heart. They've got a lot going on. If you look at verses 4 through to 6, God says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house, my house, lies in ruins? And then he he continues, consider your ways. You've sown much. You eat, you drink, you clothe yourselves, you earn wages. And yet they're caught in that cycle. But he's pointing out that in that comfort zone, it's all vanity. There's no fruit from it. He said, carries on in verse 9. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. They're stuck in this cycle of doing these nice, comfortable, easy things and actually failing to recognize it's completely fruitless. It's not bringing them home anything. They're comfortable there. They're still doing it, though. They're stuck in this cycle. They're completely blind to what's going on. It's fascinating. Um, Albert Einstein is widely credited that saying, in saying that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, but expecting different results. We can all be prone to that, can't we? And these creature comforts for these people, they were consuming their hearts and their vision so much, it blinded them to the emptiness of that lifestyle. And yet they had no desire to change it. They're completely oblivious to it. And what it's doing is killing their hunger for God and for his glory. But it gets worse. Because there's an innocuous sentence in here that we don't realize what's under the bonnet of it. In verse 8. We'll read it in a sec. Because, let's read it, let's read it now. God tells them, he says, Consider your ways. And he says, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. He says, Go up to the hills and bring wood to build my house. Now we need to realize, when the Babylonian army, when they destroyed the temple, they set fire to it. And so that destroyed the great timbers that held it up, and it all collapsed. The stonework is still reusable, but the wood isn't. The wood's completely burnt up to a crisp. 
They can reuse the stones, they can't reuse the wood, they need new wood. However, we discover when you read Ezra chapter 3, verse 7, we find out the new wood had been purchased when the foundations were being laid. It's posh wood, really nice wood, cedars from Lebanon, really good stuff. But here, God has to tell them to go up to the mountain forests to get some more. So my question is, where did the first batch go? And what are they living in? Panelled houses. It's not explicit, it's implicit. That's suddenly a bit of a gut punch, isn't it? That wood has miraculously disappeared somewhere and they've got really nice houses and they have to go and get some more wood. That carries a serious punch and these people have got some serious reflection to do. So God is saying, verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then again, verse 7, consider your ways. There's a weight to those words. He's saying, give careful thought to your ways. Some serious self-examination. You really need to go and stand in the corner and have a long hour think about what you've done. And so the same for us. Stepping into 2020, we, need to, we just need to ask ourselves, do we keep the best for ourselves? Do we give God the second best of our time, of our money, of our thoughts and so on? It's a fair question. It's a little bit brutal, but we can't, we can't not ask it, can we? I've got to ask myself. Are we in danger of having so diminished God's holiness and his right to reverence and honour above all things? Have I diminished that in my heart? Have I dimmed his holiness in my vision of him? So I mentioned Haggai's kind of co-worker, the, other, the next book, Zechariah, the other prophet who spoke to the people at the same time. There's a verse in his book, um, chapter 2, verse 13 of Zechariah, which says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Let me say that again. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. That's a little bit scary. I remember when I was a kid, and I used to do noughties, and somewhere in the house, and my mother gets wind of it, or my sisters start telling tales, and that was one thing. But then suddenly I hear those footsteps on the stairs, and I think, Dad's got out of his chair. <laughs> Dad's coming. Dad has roused himself from his seat. That's what Zechariah is saying here. Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. That's, that's a picture we need to tremble at. He... He is a good God. He is Father. He is kind. He is generous. He is loving. He is love. But we can't keep our eyes fixed on that so much we forget how holy and majestic and mighty and actually in many ways because of that scary he is as well. He is dad, but he's dad. We need to not diminish his holiness, his otherness, his set-apartedness in our hearts. Have I belittled God in my hearts? Am I just chasing after the nice things in life and fitting God into my schedule? It's a thought, isn't it? And therefore, as we come to an end, we need to ask this question right at the bottom. My house or God's house? Verse 9, the second half, God says, why is all this happening? I've blown it away. All your wages and your food and your clothing, it's all just for nothing. Why? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. The Bible makes it clear that all this stuff 
our homes, our toys, our furniture, our gardens, our creature comforts, they will disappear. They're chaffing the wind. They're stuff, aren't they? But what lasts forever is his church and our contributions to its building and its flourishing and its advancement. While, see, while in this passage we're talking about a physical building, it's an echo of the spiritual one that was yet to come. And that exists today. Anyone who calls Jesus their Lord and Savior is part of his church, his holy temple. That's you and me, if you know him. We are the spiritual uh, ending of what the temple was pointing to. Hebrews 2, verse 6 says, We are his house. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, We are God's building. The temple was actually a signpost of something greater, and we get to be part of what that greater thing is. So we are his temple. And I have to ask, what is my attitude to God's holy residence, to us, to the church, to its restoration, to its building, to its cultivation, to its flourishing, to its growth as we reach out to others who don't know him yet and invite them in? Where should I play my part? Am I doing that as a priority? Or does it have to wait in line? This does not mean, please don't mishear me, this does not mean we can't enjoy our homes and our families and our friends. Okay, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that doing church should take over our lives and negatively impact our marriages, our families, our friendships. It's not. God loves us to enjoy the good gifts he's given us. They're good gifts, and he loves us enjoying them. That's not a problem. But if they eclipse what he has called us to be, then our hearts have been stolen and we're actually living for another. That's what it means, doesn't it? Do you want to turn to Revelation chapter 2? It's the final book of the Bible. And in these early chapters, Jesus himself speaks to the leaders of seven churches, to the churches via their leaders. Well, Revelation chapter 2, start from verse 2. He's talking to the church in Ephesus, which is quite a famous one in the early history of the church. And um, this is what Jesus says to them. He says, verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Doing all right. Doing okay. They're not saying no to God. They're doing the stuff. Next verse, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They'd lost sight of their first love, the reason why they do it all. We can end up falling in love with church and doing the stuff when actually we're meant to be falling in love with Jesus and running after him. That's when the stuff kicks off and starts happening. It's very, very different. Have we lost our first love? The people of Israel, they thought they were doing this still. God's people... Still, this is our God, we still point to him, but they're not actually doing what he's asked them to do because they've lost their first love. Their new love is an easy life and nice things. So this simply boils down to a question of identity. You and I are not primarily British or American or Brazilian. That's not primarily who you are. And you are not primarily a mum or a dad brother, sister, wife, husband, teacher, programmer, retiree, student. That's not who you are. At the forefront of everything, 
today, through Jesus, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. That is your identity. That is who you are. And so that means recognizing the family business of reaching the lost, of making disciples, of touching lives, of transforming communities, of of helping the poor and so on, of pointing to Jesus, our first love. That is who we are and what we're called to do. See, Jesus did not die for us to be comfortable. Sorry. Gutty, isn't it? It's true. Jesus did not die for us to be comfortable. No, he died for us to be co-heirs and co-laborers with him in his mighty work upon this planet. And he didn't rise again so that we can live a life of unhindered leisure. He rose again so we can live a life unhindered by what will ultimately pass through our fingers. And Jesus is not sitting at the Father's right hand, interceding on our behalf so that we can sit on our backsides. He did that and he's doing that so that we can enjoy the work that he has ensured will come to full completion. We can enjoy it. Knowing he's heading the right direction and not the wrong one. He will ensure it will come to completion. He's asking us to press in and enjoy and, in, and, and to co-labor with him. There are thousands of people around us who are still hungry for what they don't even know is missing. We have that answer. We have that answer. God is still building his church, gathering more people in, building his temple, his holy place. He's asking, will we put our shoulders to the work as well? The one who sacrificed everything for us is asking us to take the wood that he has already set aside for the job and he's asking us to go and find it, to use it, and to go and build something remarkable with it, to use it to his advantage and not to our own. Carrie, a couple of months ago, sent me a prophetic word that I think is relevant here. She said, there is something that God wants us to pursue, to cry out to him, to run after him. God loves persistence and he is waiting for our hearts to be in step with his. He is asking us to pursue him, to cry out to him, to run after him. Would you like to stand with me? Stephen, if you want to come and get ready to lead us in song in a sec. Thanks, mate. So as we step into this new year, it's a perfect moment to press pause and to reflect and to ask ourselves these big questions. Just ask as you stand, just to close your eyes for a moment. We'll ask for his help. Maybe something's been mustered in you already, you just felt a sense of what God's nudging in you already. Maybe your mind's blank. But let's just ask him, just in this moment, what are my blind spots? Just ask, Lord, have I lost my first love? Has my love for you been eclipsed by comfort, leisure, fun things, entertainment, church, doing church? Has that eclipsed my love for you? Just ask him, what are you asking of me? Are you asking me to, I don't know, serve in a different capacity, in a new way? Are you asking me to reconsider how I give financially and of my time? Are you asking me to take a bold step somewhere and saying no to something that's not good for me or saying yes to something that you're calling me into? Do you know what it is, but you need to stop saying later? 
and you need to say, I'll do it now. I'm just going to give you a moment in silence just to reflect on those questions. I'll let Stephen and Bob lead us further. <laughs>